Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall, and what you're about to hear today is a recording of a presentation I gave to my private roundtable business mastermind group where people from all over the world get together three times a year to discuss business. And in this presentation, I discuss the ancient Old English story of Beowulf, which is the oldest piece of literature in anything resembling English. And I explain how it's completely pertinent to solving modern problems in business and technology and science. And uh, in the process, I give a great background on the Evolution 2.0 project. And I hope that you embrace the challenge of going to the bottom of the swamp. You should read something written before Gutenberg every day. Why? Because if you can imagine somebody in 1396 um, uh, writing, I had sushi for lunch today, there's not a scribe in the world that would copy that onto scrolls and save them uh, in caves and make sure that when Rome got sacked that the information was preserved. And so anything written before Gutenberg is the best of the best of the best of the best. Because every time a city got burned down, that was a rack to shotgun. And, uh, and, and 99% of the literature was lost. So all the stuff that we still have that, that, that's that old is the top 0.00001% of, you know, whatever that culture had. And, uh, in my opinion, it's all valuable. Um, and, and in fact, uh, modern people often have a, a little bit of a scorn for that stuff because there's an awful lot of mythology and there's a, there's an awful lot of stuff where you, you can't really tell whether it was an actual historical thing or whether it was just a mythical story or somewhere in between. And so, so these things get, uh, they get dismissed. Uh, when in actual fact, uh, what, what these stories do is they tell you very deep truths. And I had a, I had a really zen-like experience, uh, the other day, um, reading Beowulf, if you can believe it. Uh, how, how many of you had to read Beowulf at some point in high school or something like that? And how many of you actually liked it? I do like the movie. Okay. Well, I liked it when it was translated. Right. Yes. Yes. Well. Well. Yeah. I read it in college, and I got it in. It was either the original English or very close to the original English. And this is this is the oldest story in any language that can be recognized as English or even any European language. Okay. And it dates to about five or six hundred A.D. And, um, and so the original language is really hard to read. 
Um, and, and sometimes it kind of force you. But there's actually all these modern translations, and they're really good. And I actually, um, it was uh, it was something Fancher told me. Um, uh, he said he said there's this this book called The Heart Aroused, and it explains what the Beowulf story is really trying to tell you. And so um, so this happened to come up because Xander. Xander was doing it in school, and uh, and we got to talking about it. And he had to write a paper, and we we had this whole conversation about it. Um, and like, I don't really think that most school teachers do a very good job of helping kids understand why you read these stories. They think you're just supposed to read them like because. And actually, same with math teachers. Well, you're just supposed to do this because, which drove me crazy. Like, well, what do I do with this? I mean, I, I had vicious fights with my eighth grade math teacher. Well, why do I have to show my work? I could do this in my head. Why would I do all those extra steps? If you know, who, what do you use this for? She didn't know. Okay, I thought she should. I kind of thought it was her job to know what this stuff was for. Um, well, so I was in a war with her, she was in a war with me, then there was a parent-teacher conference, then my dad got really pissed off, and then, like, dad knuckled down, and, you know, um, but the, 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 I'm, I'm actually going to not tell you why you read these stories, I'm going to kind of show you why we read these stories, so, so I... I was intrigued, and I listened to the audio book version, which is what Xander had listened to, and it was really good. The narrator was good, the translation was good, and I'm like, oh my word, this is, this is just like Lord of the Rings. In fact, if you want to know where did Lord of the Rings come from, it comes right out of Norse mythology, and that's a, it's a Danish story, it's a story of a Danish king. Um, and, and I'm listening to this, and man, this is good. Like, I actually get this this time. Um, well, so so let me kind of explain the story to you. So Beowulf is a consultant. <laughs> he is. Okay? In fact, if you read it, and you're like, so so th- there's this king, and he's... He's built this great mead hall. Y'all know what mead is? Like really sweet beer? It's, it's, it's had a resurgence of popularity, I think, in the last few years. I had mead for the first time in Michigan with you guys. And then I'm starting to see it all over the place. So, you know, it's back in style. Um, big mead hall where everybody drinks. And it was like the best mead. It was the best building anywhere in the land. And all the men, you know, the knights and the men and the warriors and everybody would come and they would drink their mead. But he had this problem. is Every now and then, this monster named Grendel would show up in the middle of the, of the evening, kick down the door, kill a bunch of people, and leave. And this was really messing up the mead hall. <laughs> this is just not good. Bad for business. Bad for business, bad for the kingdom, bad for morale, and nobody can kill this thing. Well, Beowulf is this badass guy, and he lives somewhere else, and he hears about this problem. He comes, 
with all his men, and he sits down, he's like, I can kill this beast for you. And the king's like, well, if you kill this beast for me, I will bequeath, you know, it's all the flowery language and poetry, I will bequeath you with honor and nobility and gold, and, <laughs> and I will give you my daughter, and you know, it's like all this stuff, right? <coughs> and so, it's like, they agree, and well, sure enough, one day, Grendel comes back. And Beowulf starts fighting him, and the regular sword doesn't work, but, uh, um, but uh, Beowulf has, he has two things. He has this chainmail, this really badass chainmail, and he's got an iron grip. I mean, when he grabs something, man, he ain't letting go. And so, so, so they, he gets in this fight with Grendel, and Grendel's trying to kill him, but his chainmail is keeping him from dying, and, uh, and Beowulf, he tries to use his sword, but the sword doesn't work. So with his bare hands, he just rips Grendel's arm right off his, his arm and his shoulder, just rips the thing right off. And Grendel goes bleeding to death, stomping off into the swamp, and disappears into the swamp. Yay, Beowulf, man, you're an awesome consultant. Man, you are awesome. And uh, so... You know, they do all the cheers and everything, and everything's really great, until Grendel's mother shows up. And Grendel's mother is really, really mad. And Grendel's mother kills a bunch of guys, and especially she kills, like, the king's best friend, and now everybody's really sad and really despondent. And uh, so, so... Uh, well, wow, and that, now we got to fix this. So, Beowulf has to go kill Grendel's mother. So, now I'm, I'm going to actually read you. Uh, Beowulf hastened away and plunged into the lake. So, Beowulf's mother lives in a swamp. And, uh, and the poem actually says, This swamp is so bad that a deer being chased by wolves will not leap into it. It will stand there and let the wolves eat it before it will dive into the swamp. The swamp is bad, okay? But Beowulf is going to go down to the swamp. Beowulf hastened away and plunged into the lake. He would in no wise wait for an answer. The surge of the wave currents covered the warrior. Almost a day's length elapsed before he could behold the bottom thereof. Soon did she, who for a hundred winters had haunted the domain of these waters, grim and greedy, ravenous for gore, discover that some one of the men from above was come to explore this dwelling place of demons. The she-devil grabbed Beowulf. She seized him in her foul claws, but she could not harm him. His body was unscathed. His chainmail shielded him. Through his war shirt, his, the hateful monster could not thrust her hostile claws. Then Beowulf espied the accursed she-demon of the depths, the fearsome sea witch. He swung his war sword with all his strength. The ring-adorned blade sang a brutal battle song upon her head. But the visitor discovered that the battle blade would not bite, would not end the she-beast's life. Its hard edge failed the prince of heroes in his time of need. This renowned sword had known in times past many a hand-to-hand strife. 
often had it sheared through the helmet and armor of an ill-fated warrior. It was the first time that ever this excellent treasure sword had failed its glory to fulfill. Once again was Beowulf resolute, mindful of heroic deeds. His courage was not a whit diminished. The wrathful warrior cast down his sword. The inlaid blade, sturdily wrought and steel-edged, lay upon the ground. In his own strength he now trusted, in his own mighty hand grip. Thus a man must do when he intends to gain unending glory in battle. He cared not for his life. Then did the prince of the war gates seize Grendel's mother fast by the shoulder. To him the struggle was not unpleasing. Inflamed by rage, he flung his deadly foe into the ground. She swiftly gave him requital with the grim grip of her claws and grappled with him. The strongest of warriors, the best of foot soldiers, was then weary with wrestling. He stumbled and fell. Then did the she-beast hurl herself upon the fallen warrior. She wielded her war knife, broad and bright edge. She would wreak vengeance for the murder of her son, her only offspring. But upon his shoulder lay the woven chainmail that protected his life against the blade, withstood the entry point, and edge thereof. Beowulf, son of Ecthau, champion of the gates, would have perished under the wide waters had not his sturdy chainmail armor afforded him help, and had most holy God not brought about victory in battle. Once Beowulf had regained his footing, the omniscient Lord, ruler of heaven, arranged for justice to prevail. Then Beowulf beheld, amidst the war gear, an ancient blade, blessed with victory, forged by ogres, the sword was the glory of the warriors, its edges undotted. This blade was the choicest of weapons, but it was larger and heavier than any man other than Beowulf might wield in battle. The weapon was good and glorious, wrought by giants, the champion of the gates, wrathful in battle grim, grasped the sword hilt with both hands. Despairing of life, he wheeled about and smote the she-demon upon her neck. That blow broke her neck bone. The blade sliced through her body. Foredoomed, the she-monster sank upon the ground. The blade was bloody. The hero rejoiced in his triumph, then blazed forth light. T'was bright within the cavern as when from the sky there shines heaven's torch brilliant. Beowulf looked about his surroundings, then walked aside alongside the cave wall, raging and resolute. He held the weapon high, hard by the hilt, seeking Grendel. Beowulf wished to repay the monster for the many onslaughts he had wrought against the Danes. Uh, and uh, so then he cuts off Grendel's head, and uh, he took pride in his sea booty, the great prize he bore with him to the surface. The excellent troop of thanes advanced to greet their leader. They rendered thanks unto God. They rejoiced in their prince that to see him safe and sound was vouchsafed unto them. Merry and mirthful, they returned along the way they had come unto that place. The men, bold as kings, carried Grendel's head from the sea cliff. That head was too heavy for two of the stout-hearted warriors to bear. It took four of the gates with toil to convey the monster's head upon a stake unto the gold hall. So presently to the high hall did the fourteen fearless gates battle brave come. With them came their leader, proud among men, striding unto the mead hall. Because you got to drink some mead. <laughs> then did Beowulf, bold in exploits, renowned in glory, courageous hero of the conflict, enter the hall to address King Hrothgar. And then onto the hall floor where the Danes sat drinking was Grendel's head dragged by the hair. It was a horror for the warriors and queen to behold. That was a wondrous sight. They all stared at it with astonishment.
So that that is what a good consultant does. <laughs> now, now, what's the deep truth in here? I, I listened to this and I was like, "This is my life." <laughs> okay. Now, now let me let me explain. So, so there's there's like a a deep truth here. Now you kind of got to think about. You know, this is like a story where the bards would learn to sing the whole story, and it would take like two hours to sing the whole thing. And like, this is the hello, Rob, welcome. Hey, this is this is the this is the evening entertainment around the campfire. So like, the kids probably hear the story like three hundred times growing up, and and they love to hear it because. If you tell it really well, it's like you just keep wanting to hear it over and over again. So, so I'm going, like, I've been here before. I get this. Well, so, um, like you said, Fancher, Fancher told me about this book, uh, The Heart Aroused, and it has a chapter. Uh, so The Heart Aroused is sort of like uh, this book. It's, it's about, like... Um, the intersection of ancient poetry and storytelling with the modern business world. That's sort of the idea of the book. And so it's got this chapter, what does the Beowulf story tell you about business? Well, first of all, what it tells you is that it does you no good to slay Grendel until you kill the thing that gave birth to Grendel. It doesn't pay to solve a problem if you haven't solved the root of the problem, okay? And everybody wants to solve the problem, and they never actually want to go to where it originally came from. Now, how many of you have had that experience dealing with everybody, okay? Everybody wants to fix the surface-level problem, okay? Now, now here, here's where I, I had this eerie familiarity, okay? If you want to go to the root of the problem, you have to dive into the swamp. And nobody wants to go into the swamp. Okay? And the, and the deer being chased by wolves will stop and not jump into the swamp and let itself be eaten by wolves because the swamp is dreadful and awful. Okay? And then you have to go down there, and he almost dies down there. Okay? She almost kills him. The only reason... Now, now... What does the what, what does the consultant have? Well, he has defense and he has offense. Okay, so he has his chainmail and he has his weapons, and you have to have both. You, if you don't have defense, and you know, in business, I mean, defense is like not losing money. Like it's not enough to just make money, right? You have to not do stupid things, right? Um, so he has to dive into the swamp. He has, it takes a whole day to get to the bottom. Okay, then he finds out his sword doesn't work down there. He almost dies. And then when he has just a, like, when he throws around the ground and has just a minute to look around, he's like, hey, what's that? And it's only at the bottom of the swamp that you actually find the silver bullet or the secret weapon. And it was made by other people, maybe for some other purpose, but like, hey, wait a minute. I can use that. Then he grabs the thing, and then he kills the mother, and then and now the problem is solved. Okay, now, 
This was so familiar to me. Uh, so, so let's 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 put this idea on the board. Getting to the bottom of the swamp, and the way I like to think of it is touching the bottom of the swimming pool. Getting to the bottom of the problem, the very root of it, right? Like Susan's been trying to do this with public education, okay? Like, okay, stop. So, like, most people are wrestling with an octopus at the top of a swamp, and their foot can't touch the ground, right? And so it just goes round and round and round. But so let, let me give you some examples of touching the bottom of the swimming pool and actually solving the problem. So I remember hearing a talk, and this is about 25 years ago, by Paul Zane Pilzer, an economist. And he says, he says, I know what the root of the healthcare health insurance problem is in the United States. He goes, you know what it is? He goes, it's the fact that Individuals can't deduct health care from their taxes, but corporations can. Okay, please explain that as well. So, so a corporation is a group of people. A group of people can get a tax deduction, but one person can't. Okay, so now you can only buy health care as a group. Okay, and now health care is bought with a group's money. Now, how do people spend a group's money? Very wisely. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's so healthcare is always other people's money. Okay. It also means it's overpriced. If you want to buy it for yourself, it's like 15, 20, 30, 40 percent more, whatever your tax bracket is. Right. Okay. So you have to be a member of the group to buy the health insurance, and so. People don't spend it like it's their own money, right? And not only do they not spend it like it's their own money, they're spending money that's not their own money in crisis situations, right? My dad is sick, my daughter's sick, I'm sick, whatever, okay? And so, basically, you know, you've got this barnacle on a ship, and then the barnacles grow more barnacles, and the barnacles grow more barnacles, Okay, and pretty soon, so, okay, so the corporations go to insurance companies, and the insurance, co- and, and so now you'll spend, I don't know what the percentage is, 15, 20, 25% of the money just collecting the money, right? Everything's overpriced because the hospitals can, you know, and the thing, it just perpetuates, okay? And then you have this big, giant mess, and then everybody, Everybody argues about the surface level of the mess. Oh, if we had the government buy the health care instead of the insurance companies buy the health care, or if we just, you know, if we extracted the money from people in a different way, but they never actually solve the root problem. You could either take away the tax deduction for the corporations, or you could give the tax deductions for the individuals, and the problem would begin to unravel itself because like an individual can have a medical savings plan, right? And maybe, you know, it, it, you know, you, you could you could you could have ways for an individual to actually pay for this stuff. Um, and the problem would unravel. But now 
in all of the years that you've heard everybody argue about this, how many of you have ever actually heard this explanation for why the problem exists in the first place? It's very rare for people to go to the bottom of the swamp and get to the root problem and then solve the problem. You understand there's all kinds of barnacles who now have a special interest in holding that in place, right? You have a very similar situation with vouchers and, you know, how school districts spend money. You can't send your kids to where you want to send them. You have to send them to this one place and all, okay? And it's the same kind of a problem. You, if, if you gave people the ability to spend individual education dollars as individuals, a whole bunch of problems in the education bureaucracy would automatically start to unravel. Now, I had my, for me personally, my first experience of really, really getting to the bottom of the swamp and, and touching the bottom of the swimming pool when I was working on this acoustics problem in college, and um, and I won't go into what it was all about because it, it wouldn't matter to any of you, but what I can tell you is, you know, like, I built this project, and I had my microphones, and I had my measurements, and I'm trying all this stuff, and I never got anywhere with it. It was like, I couldn't figure it out. And here's what I eventually had to do. What I eventually had to do... I, I, I just I, I had already tried to attack it uh, on my own, and then I took an acoustics class, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to attack this again, and hopefully, I have a little more education under my belt now, and so I'm going to try to solve it again." And here's what I had to get down to: I had to get down to f equals ma. I had to get down to force equals mass times acceleration, and I had to take this acoustics problem and start with the most basic fact of physics. Force equals mass times acceleration and I had to like work so like start at the very bottom of the swimming pool and then put a brick down there and then put another brick on top of that, put another brick until I could get all the way to the surface and I figured it out. It's like, oh wow. Now mo most people have never experienced that. They've never actually taken like some really simple rudimentary thing and then, like, okay, so this is true, and this is true, then I can take those two things, and I can reach this conclusion, and this conclusion. It's like, it's like just pure logical progression. And, um, and, and then, like, you, you, you check, like, you go up and down, and up and down the chain, and you check everything, like, wait, I got, I've got this all correct. This is right. Alright? And, and I had that experience. I got an A on the paper. I finally understood this thing for the first time. It made sense. It was elegant. Okay, so I had that experience. Well, that came in really handy. That, that, that was my, that was my first ex experience of taking the trip to the bottom of the swamp, right? Diving down. All right. Fast forward. I get into the somewhat famous argument I had with Brian about evolution and, and, and I, I get into this thing. And I quickly realize everybody is wrestling octopuses up in the surface. Okay? And I'm looking at this whole entire argument. Like most of the things that people argue about. They argue about healthcare. They argue about education. They argue about evolution. They argue about acoustics. Whatever. And nobody goes to the bottom of the swamp. Everybody just stays. Or they won't even go into the swamp. They just, you know, 
We just argue with each other. And, and it never gets anywhere. Well, I already I had that primal sense of this is what it was like. I was hearing things that didn't it, it didn't all add up. And so I'm like, okay, where's the bottom of the swimming pool? And I started looking for it because I knew what it felt like. Now, how many of you, just in your business anywhere, how many of you, like, you're already thinking of, yes, I have had the experience of touching the bottom of the swimming pool. I mean, it could be like, oh, you know, I had this big, giant mess with my my books, and then I finally got a good bookkeeper and a good accountant, and he finally told me how much money I have, or something else. Like, are you kind of relating to this? Okay, so so forgive me. Like, what was the bottom of the swamp? Accounting. Oh, okay. It was a mess, and I never got into it. And uh, then my assistant left, and when we got the new assistant, I had, I had to deep, do deep diving into it, discover a lot of things that were not in place. Yeah. So we started like, piece by piece putting it together. Yes. Good. Anybody else? It can be completely different. Chris? We had, we had 2008, so our entire business model collapsed, and we had to restructure a brand new business model from scratch while we were in the heat of the fire. That's as bottom of the swamp as you can get. Yeah. And so, like, and, and what was, like, the core truth at the bottom of the swamp that you, that you could start with and, and work from there? Uh, well, the core truth was we had a demand, and we needed to figure out how to supply it with systems and structure, not with me being a bullshit guy. Okay. Oops. With her examining every strand, we rebuilt it thread by thread. That basically bottom line. Yeah, like you, you wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, I, I know I'm in this big mess, but the other thing I at least know is there's people who want sighting still call. in the world and the phone is still ringing. So there must be a way, there must be a way to connect these dots. This is why you read a book like Scientific Advertising, because it's like it was the first guy to get to the bottom of the swamp and figure out, okay, so if you're going to scientifically do advertising, you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and you do this. And this is why we have Uncle Claude quotes in our Google AdWords book, is because Uncle Claude touched the bottom of the swamp, and we're... Like, we're trying to teach people to touch the bottom of the swamp. I'm not just teaching you AdWords and, like, how to push these buttons in the interface. I'm teaching you, okay, there's trackers, these people coming, you're going to put a message in front of them, they're going to respond, we're going to measure that, we're going to test stuff, and we're going to get to the truth. Right? So, so, um, so, so, all right. Uh, I'm hearing, like, this whole evolution thing, I have no idea what's true, I have no idea what's not. i got to get to something that's true. What is it? What is it? And I go looking and looking and looking, and I said, oh, DNA is digital code, it obeys all the rules of communication systems, and I wrote an Ethernet book, and I know about that. And that is the bottom of the swamp. Like, you can start with that most basic, fa- it's like the most basic fact of communication. There... There is a transmitter, there is a receiver, there is a message that's like ones and zeros, or encoder, decoder, okay? And there's rules about how that works, and that is the bottom of the swamp. And if I figure out what that means and how it applies, then I can begin to unravel this whole ball of yarn. Well, um, it's kind of interesting what that led to, um, 
Because what happened, so I went, I went and looked. I was really curious about the timeline of this thing. Because it, it felt like I was floating around in the swamp looking for the bottom for a really long time. And I went back and I looked at my, because there was a certain book I bought that finally pointed me in the right direction. And, and, and I know when that trip to China was, and I know, and, and I looked, it only, it only took a week. I thought it was like two or three months. No, it took a week because I knew what it was like to touch the bottom of the swamp. And, um, and so I'm hunting. I finally find it. Wait a minute. This is code. This is digital code. I already understand this. And I had this like, it was like this flood of, in two, of hunches. It was like, well, that probably means this is true. That probably means this is true. It probably means this is true. It probably means this is true. And like, are literally. You, are you yes. the originator of that idea of DNA as code? No. No. It's his, it, it goes all the way back to Francis Crick and James Watson who discovered the genetic code in 1953. It goes all the way back to their original discovery. And then within a few, like they figured out the chemicals, the A, C, and G, and T, they figured in the helix that, that, that's on every textbook and, 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 you know, and video, they figured that out. And within a few years, they worked out what the genetic code was. Okay, so this is code. So everything, the way this works, has to obey the rules of code. So if evolution is true, it has to obey these rules. It can't just be this willy-nilly thing that hangs in thin air. And it can't be random and accidental because codes never evolve random and, and, and accidentally, right? And so it actually, it led me into paradoxes, okay? And, and I'm, I'm not here to like tell you that whole story. Um, that's like, we could talk about that at a different lunch or, or something if you want to hear it. But it was like, it was like, okay, here's the bottom of the swimming pool and now here's a brick. And then here's another brick, and then here's another brick, and I can work my, and I can check my logic all the way up and down, I can make sure that it's right. And if I do that, I'm unassailable. Now, um, now, for me, that was actually like killing Grendel. But then I had to go kill Grendel's mother. The, the real trip down, and usually, usually you'll have several versions of this. Usually killing Grendel is a trip down, down into a swamp. And, but then that's not actually the root of the problem. And then, you know, and then you're in another swamp. And, like, life is a series of swamps. Like, it never really stops, okay? Um, eventually, the real question became, okay, how do, how do I slice through all the verbiage and the arguments and the deflection? It's just like if you're going you're gonna to solve the healthcare problem. How would you get Congress to recognize that at the root of this problem is a tax deduction? Well, we're not going to sit here and try to figure that out, but that, that would be, that would be your problem. How do I prove this? How do I, how do I put this in their face so that they can't deny it anymore? Now, what I realized that what I had to do was, I kind of discovered this by accident, was I have to put money on this. I discovered if people are making up these stories and I put money on the table and I say prove it, because of how our culture responds to money, they will listen. So I put together this prize. And I didn't, when I first tried it, I didn't know anybody would take that seriously. I said, 
hey, you know, if you if you can solve this problem, if you can get from chemicals to code, I'll write you a check for ten thousand dollars. I didn't know that was going to work, but it works. And all of a sudden, all of this and all the you know ducking and weaving and nonsense just went away. Wow. Okay. Well, then what I really want to do is make a $10 million prize instead of a $10,000 prize, and the world take this really seriously. And so I went on the expedition to do that. Well, here's the, here's the thing. I got several, several things, points I want to make about this. Because this, this is like really important. Okay, so why do you tell a Beowulf story? Because everybody wants to be Beowulf. Now, not everybody wants to dive into the swamp, and most people actually just want to watch a story in a movie or read it in a book, because they don't actually want to live there. But the real people actually want to be the hero. Okay, so if you want to be Beowulf, what do you have to do? Well, you have to have a great defense. You have to have a great offense, which is whatever your gift or your superpower is, right? So you've got a superpower for getting up in front of people, doing what you do, and you've got a superpower for organizing all this stuff, right? Everybody's got their superpower, right? Um, uh, Beowulf was his awesome grip. All right. Um, then, but, but then you have to be the person who goes to the root of the problem, gets to the foundations, solves the problems, and really kills the monsters and slays the dragons. This is why we tell these stories. So, um, now... When you do this, you'll get the respect of, of the highest level people. Like, it will take you all the way to the king. Uh, and, and I, I want to give you, uh, some examples of this. So, I, um, so I had, uh, in this, in this whole prize project, um, I had to get some judges. Uh, one of, well, let's see, I'm not ready for that. One of my judges is Dennis Noble. Dennis is, uh, got a kind of, uh, so, I, Dennis is the guy who figured out the cardiac rhythm which made pacemakers possible. Um, he, he also, uh, made, uh, there's a, uh, a drug for, uh, people with irregular heartbeats called Evibradine, which he also had a key part in developing. He's the first person to model a human organ on a computer, which he did in 1960 using punch cards in the middle of the night in London. Um, and so he's a fellow of the Royal Society. He edits one of the Royal Society's journals. He organized a <coughs> an evolution conference in London last year. Um, impeccable credentials. He's president of the International Physiology Association, and he's 80 years old. All right. So I'm at this conference last year, and I approach him and I ask him to be a judge for the prize, and he agreed to. And I eventually said, "Well, my evolution book's coming out in paperback. Could I get you to endorse this book?" And he's like, "Well, let me see." And so he read the book. He sent me this email about three or four months ago, and he said. He said, uh, the reason for this email is I've already discovered that you are also a cautious rebel in the sense which I'm using the expression. After just a few chapters, I can see and admire how you test each statement almost to destruction through carefully looking at the evidence, hence the note, hence the note of congratulation. 
I have learned a lot from the way in which you develop your argument and case. Um, now, that's a high compliment from a guy like that. Now, now here's, what he, here's what he actually said. Uh, Evolution 2.0 is a remarkable, meticulous dissection of the experimental evidence on evolution. Perry starts from information theory and practice. Um, that's one bottom of the lake, right? I started from research on the heart's pacemaker. That's a different bottom of the lake. But we have come to almost identical conclusions. Okay? Now, what, what am I saying? What I'm saying is, I went to the bottom of the swamp and I figured out, I can put a brick right here and it will not move. And it will be right. Right? And then I can build another brick on top of that, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Now, what actually happened was, you know, I was, I was doing this, and he did this, and they actually met somewhere. And we came to, again, almost identical conclusions coming from completely different angles. Why? Because we both started at the bottom of the lake. He, he's trying to figure out how do we, why is a heart rhythm irregular? Well, I'll start knocking out genes and I'll do all this stuff. And he starts figuring out when he starts knocking out genes, hey, the current gene theories don't work. They're wrong. That means the current evolution model is wrong. So he ends up organizing a whole conference, which created a huge ruckus, by the way. I mean, this was, this pissed off a lot of people. But he had the authority to do it. He was the first person that ever tried to do this that had enough authority to pull it off because he had such impeccable credentials. Now, what am I saying? I'm saying, if you do this, if you solve problems at their roots, if you, you know, plug your nose and go to the bottom of the swamp, you will reach the bottom. And then you can really do something there because you have footing, you have traction. And this is what the Beowulf story is trying to tell you. Nobody wants to go down there. Most people would get killed if they go down there. But if you go down there, and you find the ancient sword. Now, um, the, my version of finding the ancient sword was this little $10,000 challenge. I had, I mean, I just kind of grabbed something, and it works. Well, on August 28th at Arizona State University, I announced a $5 million prize. Um, another guy who read my book is like, hey, this, this guy's good at going to the bottom of the swamps. His name uh, is Paul Davies, very famous physicist, best-selling author. He's written all kinds of books about cosmology and everything. He's the director of the Beyond Center at ASU. I didn't realize until I got there that ASU Beyond program is really the leading program in the world for, like, the really big questions of science, like, where did the laws of physics come from? Where did the Big Bang come from? Are there extraterrestrials? Where did life come from? These kinds of questions. They push harder on those questions than any other university in the world. And Paul runs that program. So he invited me. And, and, and so what, now, I, I've seen this happen multiple times. Uh, I'm not so sure I was aware of this a couple of years ago, but I'm aware of it now, is that if you, if you go deeper into the swamp than anybody else has gotten, or as deep as you can get, the best people in the world will take you seriously and pay attention to you. So I, I had I had some interesting things happen along the way. So um, and this is all I, I think all of this is a real it's a study 
in in persuasion. I'm going to show you a couple things. So this is uh, this is Dennis, the guy I was talking about. Well, there's there's another guy, um, and he was he was at so. Paul reaches out to me in June. He's like, hey, I've got this lecture series at ASU, and I'd like you to come and talk. And uh, I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. It actually took me about a week to realize, hey, Perry, this is your launch date. Like, I put together this prize and raised $5 million, but I hadn't announced it. I hadn't sent out any press releases. I hadn't done anything because I was, like, waiting for I don't know, there's going to be some time or place to push this out there. I'm like, hey, wait a minute, like, this is it. You're speaking at a major university, you got invited by famous physicists, this is it. Well, dang, i got to get some judges, because I only had one, I only had him. And I've been reaching out to all these other people. I mean, scientists are conservative. Oh my goodness, they are conservative creatures. They do not stick their necks out. Like, you know how marketers, like, really love new ideas? Scientists don't. Okay? Um, very cautious people and very risk averse. And I found that, you know how they say it's not what you know, it's who you know? It's even more true in science than it is, like, even in our world. It's more, it's more who you know. Yes. Yes. And if you're, if you're shaking the building blocks, you better know some good people. Because otherwise, they'll just dismiss you. And so I'm like, I gotta have at least three judges. Um, and uh, so, so I went, I went on this mad scramble to go find more judges. So I'm emailing Nobel Prize winners and physicists and biologists and chemists and professors and I mean, I mean, I just on this spree every day. I'm like spending a few hours just, you know, spamming people. <laughs> well. Um, two and a half hours before I went on stage, the number one person on my list texted me and said, I'm in. And it was this guy. This is George Church. He's at Harvard and MIT. He's been involved in just about every major breakthrough in genomics in the last 30 years. He was considered for the Nobel Prize a few years ago. Uh, has written 425 papers and has 95 patents. And when I talk to him on the phone, I go, now, this is controversial, and if you don't want controversy, um, like, don't do this. And he goes, I'm not afraid of controversy. Everything I do is controversial. <laughs> he goes, like, like he, he would seriously be in favor of trying to create a Jurassic Park, okay? <laughs> really, all right? Um, he has a very ambitious um, agenda of what he wants to do with genomics, but he's not afraid of anybody, and he's bulletproof, and he's a rock star, and he's been, you know, the media knows who he is. He signed up. Like I said, two and a half hours before I, I went on stage, I, I, at that point I only had two judges. Like, well, I guess I'll have two judges. No, we're, I'm eating lunch with the ASU people, and I get a text from him. Um, uh, the president of Hero X. So, um, how many of you know what the X Prize is? The X Prize for space flight. How many of you don't know the X Prize story? Okay, let me back up. Um, how many of you know the real reason why Lindbergh flew the Atlantic? 
there was a $25,000 prize for the first person to fly across the Atlantic. And that's why Charles Lindbergh did it. He didn't do it for the glory. He did it because he wanted the money. Okay? Well, Peter Diamandis found out about this. And Peter had this burn, uh, this burning conviction that you don't need giant government programs to have space flight. He's like, a private corporation ought to be able to do space flight, and it shouldn't cost billions and billions of dollars. So he, he, he said, look, if, if Charles Lindbergh would fly the Atlantic for $25,000, we ought to be able to get somebody to get into space and do a reusable spacecraft for $10 million. And so he went, he, he got backing from the Ansari family, which is these billionaires, and he got them to pay for an insurance policy. And he went to an insurance company, like one of these hole-in-one insurance companies, and he said, hey, I want to, I want to put together this challenge with a $10 million prize, and I want to buy an insurance policy, just like a hole-in-one golf thing, so if somebody, uh, if somebody can, can, fly a spacecraft twice in two weeks, get in an orbit, that they'll get $10 million, which, of course, is a low probability of ever happening. Well, they went and they talked to defense contractors and Lockheed Martin or, you know, McDonnell Douglas or whoever they go talk to, and all these guys said, there's no way anybody's going to build, you know, a private company's going to build a spacecraft that does that for, you know, any reasonable amount of money. Your money's safe. Nobody's going to get it. So they backed it. And the Ansari family paid the insurance premiums. And 10 years later, Paul Allen of Microsoft won. And he spent $25 million to win a $10 million prize. And he wasn't the government. And $25 million is not $25 billion, right? Okay, so huge paradigm shift. Hey, wait a minute. Really difficult questions in science um, can be solved with prizes. You crowdsource the solution instead of putting professors on tenure and hiring research teams to go do this stuff. And so that started the XPRIZE Foundation, and now they have like, I don't know, 50 or $100 million of prizes for all these different kinds of things. Well, well, they also, they also have another company called HeroX, and HeroX is XPRIZE for anybody. Okay, anybody can make one of these technology prizes, and that's the platform that, that I'm on. And uh, now we're the biggest prize on HeroX. There's stuff from Coca-Cola, there's stuff from IBM, there's stuff from a bunch of different companies, and we're the biggest prize. Well, I was talking to the president of HeroX, and he goes, well, Perry, he goes, he goes, you're a Christian, and everybody is going to want to dismiss this as some creationist Trojan horse. And you can't let that happen. you got to go get some atheists. He goes, can you, like, get $5 million of atheist money? I'm like... <laughs> and I'm like, um, not this fast. But I had an idea. I'm like, you know what? Let me go talk to somebody. So there's, what, what, there's, a, there's a guy named Michael Ruse, this guy right here, Florida State University. And I didn't know him, but I knew a radio host who knew him. And he is a, he, he's a famous atheist. He's, a, he's in the philosophy department and teaches philosophy and science, uh, philosophy and biology, 
and History of Science, and he's written a bunch of books, like a bunch, a bunch of books. And uh, I called him, and I told him what I was doing, and he agreed to come on as a judge. So I got a famous atheist, I've got a fellow of the Royal Society, and I've got a rock star genomics guy from Harvard and MIT on my team. Okay, now nobody can claim that Perry's prize is some silly little creationist Trojan horse because I have some of the best scientists in the entire world on my team. Now, this is pretty remarkable considering I'm a marketing consultant and an electrical engineer. But, but, but why did this work? Well, I think there was some providence involved and, and, and stuff like that. I also think it has everything to do with going to the bottom of the lake and, like, anchoring this thing. And, you know, not, not only did I... So there was two parts of it. There was, you know, getting the logic and the reasoning and the, and the science correct, but then an entirely different question is how do you communicate it, okay? And can I defend this? And, like, when I have a conversation with people... How quickly can I get to checkmate where we've pushed all the BS out of the conversation? Susan, do you wake up every morning and says, how do I push the BS out of the education conversation? By the way, you guys need to have a hot seat too. Okay, so we've got to work you in the schedule. Um, to do that one. Okay, good. She good. already worked herself. Good. <laughs> good for you. I, thank you. But how, how, I mean, this, and this is, this is a major problem. Anything you're trying to do now, how do I push the BS out of the conversation to get to what is real? How many of you in your business, like, this is a major, right? And like, and how do I get people who don't want to go to the bottom of the swamp because they're like deer, you know, how do I get them to go down there with me? I smack them with the truth that's so undeniable they have to shape the way they look at things. Right, okay, you said it. Smack them with the truth that's so undeniable. It shapes the way they looked at things before. That it shapes the way they looked at things before. Now that's what a great marketer does, okay? So like, a mediocre marketer just writes clickbait headlines and they get people to click on stuff. A great marketer shapes people to their very foundations. Martin Luther King was a great marketer. Gandhi was a great marketer. Einstein was a great marketer. Edison was a great marketer. And if you go all the way to the bottom of the swamp, and you get to the truth, and then you also figure out, like, what's that sword? Where's that sword that cuts through all the BS so that I can communicate it to the world and prove that I'm victorious? Why what? Well, you're saying it's the building blocks and diving the bottom of the swamp, and that's for sure. Right. Evolution 2.0 came from a marketer and an engineer because you got a bug up your ass to do it. Right. What is that? I mean, that's the desire part. Like, why would you dive at the bottom of the swamp unless you're in touch with someone? What is that burning need that makes you have to do this? Because oh. that's what's motivating you more than it is. Well, okay, yeah. So why is it, uh, let's talk about why this is important. I'll, t- I'll tell you why this is important. So, do you do y'all know that we can now edit genomes at will just as easy as find and replace in Microsoft Word? We can we can do find and replace 
and edit genes as easy as you can in Microsoft Word now. Cystic fibrosis. So it's called CRISPR. It was taken for bacteria, because bacteria do this. So they basically stole the bacterial system and tweaked it. And like, oh, hey, we, uh, it's kind of, oh, you want your son to have blue eyes, or you want to fix cystic fibrosis, or you want to do this or that? No problem. Okay. Well, here's the problem. I mean, is 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 that appealing? Does that have a certain amount of appeal? Okay. But do you think there's any problems with that? <laughs> okay. So now, Justin, how? Okay. How easy is it to write a completely flawless computer program that's only a thousand lines long? It happens every time. <laughs> okay. So, so, so there, there's a book called a crash, a crack in creation, by Jennifer Dowden, who is one of the pioneers of the CRISPR technology. It's a very popular book now. If you walk into Barnes and Noble, it's probably like sitting on the front table, and it's about how we can do all this stuff. Literally on page four, it says, "We know." that evolution occurred through random mutations and natural selection, and now for the first time, we're going to take intentional control of this process. She's wrong. She is egregiously wrong, and I know she is wrong, because I've been to the bottom of the lake. All those evolutionary steps from the first cell to us are not random. Okay? We barely understand how all that code actually works. I'd say we understand about 5% of it. You want to kill 200,000 people? There's this thing called gene drive where they can program, they can edit the genes so that future generations will have more edits and more edits and more edits. Okay, so like they can insert stuff that will keep proliferating. Okay, all you need is one bad experiment from somebody who thinks they know more than they know and you have no idea what you have. Okay, like well, we're going to kill mosquitoes. Like, that's a big one, right? Well, we're, we're going to get rid of mosquitoes, or we're, we're going to get rid of malaria, or, like, all these very well-intentioned things. Well, I don't know. I, I agree malaria is bad, but if you kill all the mosquitoes, like, are, are mosquitoes an essential part of the ecosystem? Are there things that eat mosquitoes, right? Uh, what if you do this wrong, okay? It's like... <clears throat> You don't want somebody who's never been to the bottom of the lake to be doing this. This is really important. It also affects how people see the world, how they see life. If you think that life is, is if, if life got to be the way it is through this random, completely accidental, purposeless process, that, that's a completely different view of the world than saying, no, it's, it's purposeful, it's intelligent, it's more amazing than anything that we know how to build and we need to respect it. Two completely different views of the world. And this this was the bug up my ass because because I saw I saw people lapsing into nihilistic like oh life is meaningless based on what they believed about evolution, which was technically wrong, which did not touch the bottom of the lake. It was wrong. Like no, this is not random. This is not purposeless. This is way beyond anything humans know how to do, and we need to learn from this. I said, if we, if we can figure this out, we will have so many breakthroughs in engineering, technology, medicine, cancer research, you can't even believe it. But we have to figure out how this works. So this became a serious burden. It's like, I have to do this. I have spent so much money on this project and so much time. 
that has to be done. And it was like, well, nobody else is doing it. Not, not, they're not doing it right. I can point to all kinds of people that are doing it wrong. And nobody trying to do what I'm doing has gotten this far. Paperbacks just out. I now have endorsements from Oxford, UCLA, um, King's College London, Oxford, International Review of Cell and Molecular Biology. This is like not what marketers usually do. But I got to the bottom of the lake. And I had serious conversations with these guys. I have coffee with them. I have Skype sessions with them. And like, they know I'm right. And they're pissed off about this stuff too. But they're drowned out by like the social media crowd, if you will. They're drowned out by the really mediocre people that write all the textbooks. Okay? And they know, like, we, we have to figure this out. It's really important. Or somebody's going to make a really big mistake. Like, a really big mistake. And so, all these things come together. It's like, you know, sometimes Beowulf isn't just a consultant showing up to, to collect some cash. Sometimes Beowulf is like, no, like, we got a monster, and we got to kill the monster, because if you don't kill this monster, like, like life is really bad. It's really bad if a monster shows up every two weeks, kicks down the door, and like kills a bunch of guys. Like, this is not acceptable, right? So, so what what is Beowulf really about? It's about it's about solving the problem that gave birth to the problem. It's about diving into the swamp that nobody else wants to dive into. It's about using your offense, it's about using your defense, and it's about finding the secret weapon almost when you're about to die. How many of you have found the secret weapon when you were almost about to die? I mean, isn't that usually how it is? So if you're if in some department of your life, you're about to die, it probably means you're about to make a big discovery. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0